Amen. You may be seated. On Christ we stand, the solid rock. Jesus said that you will build your house either on the sand, that when the storm comes it will be blown away, or you will build your house on the rock of Christ. This morning, if you don't have a sermon outline, please just lift your hand, and these men that are coming down the aisles will give one to you. We now sink our teeth into the first verses of 1 John. I invite you to a steak dinner right now. Dinner is served. We come to the meat of the Word. Our church loves to study the eternal Word of God. You do not need to know what Andrew Coleman or, or Jason Hill or anybody else um, thinks and believes. What you really need to know in here is what God says. So we come to 1 John um, and we come to the glorious eternal words of God. And notice the title of the message this morning, The Never-Changing Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Never-Changing Gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we come to the first four verses of this letter. And what is interesting about this is that we can look at these first four verses, this first paragraph as it were, and this is really an, an encapsulation of the entire letter. This is a synopsis of everything that we're going to see. And upon first read, if you're not, if you're not taught the background, if you're not taught the things, there, there's several things about this that might seem a little confusing. But that's why we study the Bible verse by verse, and we study the context of it, and we study the background of it. And as we do that, the text comes more and more alive. And so that's what I believe, and that's certainly what I've prayed for this morning, is that these truths about the never-changing gospel of Jesus Christ will come and minister to your heart. Let's look at the review from last week. Last week, we looked at the cascade of 1 John. Over and over, here's a repeating cascade. You remember, we talked about a waterfall, water flowing off one rock and bouncing onto another and perhaps a pool, and then flowing out of that down to another one. Imagine that as you see this. We see in 1 John that John is writing to the churches and he's saying, right belief with right behavior results in genuine love. Right belief and right behavior result in genuine love. Love of God and love of the people around us. But if our belief is wrong and our behavior is wrong, then we live like the world which does not understand the love of God. Notice the next thing. We've said, that, that what is the genre of this? Well, it's an open letter, and it's to all churches. Now, all of the Bible is to all churches. We would recognize that. But when we see the function and the reason that the, the letter was written, it's very interesting that this is a letter. It's very pastoral, as we'll see and remember again, but it was written in a very general sense without a lot of specific references to those who are reading Notice the next part, the author who wrote this. It was the Apostle John, or John was the disciple and apostle who wrote this. Um, we said this last week, and you'll remember this. He was the youngest who became what? The oldest. He was the youngest. So he was the youngest of the disciples when Jesus was alive. But that means that by being younger, he's probably going to outlive the others. And he certainly did that. And while the others, in fact, were even persecuted unto death, John, we would say, was the last man standing, the last apostle standing. Now, I've removed this one, and I probably shouldn't. Put it out there to the side and just remember this. Last week, we said that 
John writes in a very purposeful, artistic way. John writes in a very purposeful, artistic way. And it's the words that he uses, and it's the structures that he uses. And this morning, we're going to see a bit of that. We're going to see how he, he is, is, is very interesting and very purposeful in the way that he unfolds his message to us. All of that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just like all of the others, but where various writers would be very straightforward, where the Gospel of Mark would just be very, very um, straightforward without a lot of artistic flair, here we're going to see the beauty of a very important concept that he brings to us through using language, specific language. So notice this and fill it in. His message is very pastoral, which by that we mean gentle, but it's also polemical. He comes hard against false doctrines. So he's being sensitive as a pastor, but he's also being extremely firm. And um, in fact, um, the Apostle Paul is usually not as stark in his writings as John is. John just puts it out there, and you got to deal with it. And the apostle, the apostle Paul would very often come around and say, now I'm going to say this, but, you know, think about this and look at it this way, and grace comes up this way. John doesn't do that. We're going to see as we study over the next few months that John says some statements that are, while they are pastoral and gentle in some ways, other things he says that are extremely firm. The setting, what's the setting? This is very important. You always need to know the setting of whatever it is that you're reading in the Bible. The critical transition, this is a a critical moment at the end of the eyewitnesses. John is the last eyewitness. John is the last guy alive to have walked and seen Jesus, at least the last apostle, teaching apostle. And so there weren't many of those. By now, they're second and third generation believers Remember with me, this is probably 60 years after Jesus went to the cross, rose again, and ascended to heaven. 60 years after the establishment of the church. So the church has been growing. The apostle uh, Paul has done his missionary journeys by now. Those are done. Churches have been spread all around the Mediterranean world, from Jerusalem across southern Uh, the southern aspect of the Mediterranean, which is North Africa, up around Turkey, across Greece, all the way over to Italy, and by now, for sure, all the way to Spain, we see he is one of the last eyewitnesses. And so people had a reverence for John. He was older. He was probably in his mid to late 80s at this point. And so he is one of the last eyewitnesses. This is a key transition. But there were doctrinal problems in the churches, As always, false teachers were rising up. Now, that started immediately upon Jesus leaving and uh, the Holy Spirit coming. We know that there were some who, who doubted the gospel. There were some who taught a different gospel. The Apostle Paul and Peter would deal with that all of the time. But here we see John is dealing with it too. New heresies are circling around. And I've left these kind of filled in so we can move fast, but I want you to notice them. First of all, and you say the the end words aloud when I get to it, but denying Jesus was what? That's one of the things that was being denied in the churches. There were false teachers coming in and saying, well, was he really the Messiah? No, he wasn't really the Messiah or the Christ. How about this one? Denying Denying Jesus was really the Son of God. 
So denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. You see, there was, a, there was this, in, what we call incipient Gnosticism, this, this, this knowledge that would supposedly the elites knew the knowledge and the elites were more spiritual and they could explain the difference between the spirit and the body and anything having to do with the body was sinful, anything having to do with the spirit was righteous. And Jesus, you know, there was, there was this difference just like with everyone, there's this difference between the spirit and the body and as As that came about, they would say that Jesus wasn't really in the body. He wasn't really in the flesh because he was God and he was spirit. And so because of that, that really wasn't. So when it came to the cross, he didn't really go to the cross. The spirit left him and somebody, you know, his body went to the cross, but that wasn't really the spirit of the Messiah. So they're they're denying Messiah. They're denying son of God. They're denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. They're denying Jesus' death was necessary for forgiveness of sins. They're suggesting that there's other ways in which you can be forgiven. Now, I just want to make clear to you that these types of arguments have been since the beginning. I mean, we looked even Wednesday night at Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where Satan comes and says, did God really say to Eve, He comes questioning God. He comes questioning not only who God is, but what God has said and what God has done. And here we see that that continues even in the early church. Now, we benefit from this because the same problems are in our society too. The same denials, the same arguments are all around us. What the world believes about Jesus is very, very convoluted and very, very off track. And it really does not emanate from Scripture when you look at what the world understands and believes about Christ. This is why this is so helpful to us as we come to God's Word and we see so we can know the truth of who Jesus is that comes through His written Word. So there were doctrinal problems, as you see, but there were also behavioral problems. And um, we just, just, it will suffice to say that loving the world instead of loving God and others was their problem. John has a lot to say about those who love the world. John has a lot to say about the fact that we can get our focus on the things that are around us, the flesh that's around us. We can get our focus on these things and seek to live in them instead of living for the eternal truth. So John is seeking to correct and and realize some of these things. Notice with me the text. Let's go ahead and read it, and then we're going to blast through it this morning. First, John chapter 1 in verse one through four, verses one through four. Notice how it begins. It has the word that. Would you please circle the word that? You're gonna see the importance of the word that in just a moment, but let's circle that word and then we keep going. Number one, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Why would he begin in such a peculiar way? You notice that this introduction is not I, John, writing to the churches here, or I, John, writing to this individual. We see that John gets with it right away. And this is a general letter. This is a a general picture to to everyone that is reading, um, everyone who would come across this letter, even through the ages, and it is powerful. The first thing I want us to notice as we study and start our study of of the book of 1 John is this. Notice the grand and glorious person and work of Christ. Notice the grand and glorious person and work of Christ. It is amazing the way John begins this. He is beginning, he's using words to expand out and blow apart any type of hesitant view, any type of minimalistic view of who Jesus really is. And he does so, notice this, he does it, notice the words that he uses, that, which, the word of life, the life, and he calls it, it, it's, it's the eternal life. And then he uses in verse 3, that, once again. You say, well, what is he doing here? Instead of using who, the personal pronoun of who, or excuse me, the relative pronoun, John uses that, which, what, also. And notice again, let's, let's see it again. And look, verse 1, I want you to see this. That which was from the beginning. Why didn't he say him who was from the beginning? Or who was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning, and then he says, the word of life. He doesn't say Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking about. But he's doing something different here. In verse 2, he calls him the life. The life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. doesn't say him. He says it. Now, I want you to see what he's doing here. First of all, in verse, letter A, John begins by centralizing everything on Jesus Christ. So he, he, he's setting up linguistically to make a very profound and dramatic statement here, and it's all beginning with Jesus. Jesus is centralized. It's not to the church. It's not to various individuals. It's not merely to a, a, perhaps a, a light understanding and on-the-surface proclamation, but it's a, it's, listen to this, it's a bit of a cryptic message at the beginning. It's a bit of a mystery that he's presenting when he's starting to talk about Jesus. He's not speaking of him in, in very um, straightforward terms. He's beginning to show us a much broader picture See, letter B, fill this in. Jesus begins by aggrandizing, increasing, exploding our view of Jesus Christ. He's blowing it up. He wants us to see the grand nature of Christ. He is is doing that. How does he do that? He declares the physical body of Jesus, and we see that in verse 1. Look what it says in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, so he's, he's heard it, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, 
concerning the word of life. So there's, he's, he's making very clear that Jesus was here physically. He's, he's recognizing that, that Christ is a person. But here it is. Here's what the language is all about. But he's also declaring the spiritual nature of Jesus. He's also declaring the spiritual nature of Jesus. You see, Christ is much more than a mere human person. He is a person, but he's much more than that. And so, as it, don't, don't turn the page, stay right here. And notice this with me, that he is starting to show us that this is, mere than, this is more than any type of person you've ever seen before. When he is beginning his letter, he's, he's saying that this Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. He is saying this, it is Jesus and everything about Jesus. It's Jesus and his humanity and his deity. It's Jesus and all of his teaching. It's Jesus and all that he did, the works of Christ. And what is the most important work that Christ did for us? He died on the cross for our sins. When we talk about the work of Christ, the great work of Christ was going to the cross for sinners. And so when John is starting to write and he's, and he's declaring the beginning of his letter, he's saying, look at this Jesus. Look at this Jesus in his grand and glorious nature. He is the word of life. You see, it's more than just a man. He's the word of life. He is, he calls him, the eternal life. And so fill this in. The gospel, or good news, encompasses everything Christ is and everything he does. And so underneath that where it says everything that Christ is, you can put on there his humanity and his deity or his being a man and being God. But it's not only his humanity and his deity, but it's all that he does. And John wants us to see this. I've often been intrigued by this. So we, we start off, the very beginning, it comes from that word that instead of who or that him we see that it's this neuter pronoun that is a grand thing that goes beyond the picture of merely a man. The second thing that we notice is that in, look at the box on the top of page two, it says that which was, and I've underlined it for you, that which was from the beginning. Now here's one of the glorious things about the person and work of Christ. It is unchanging. He is unchanging. Notice the unchanging person and work of Christ. You see, John is going not back to Herod's day when a virgin gave birth to a child in Bethlehem. And John is not going back to Isaiah's day when it was prophesied that that would happen. And John is not going back to uh, various other prophets of the Old Testament and events of the judges or the kings or um, even to Moses or Abraham, John is going all the way back to the beginning. You say, what beginning? The beginning. He's going all the way back to before the foundation of the world. 
And so John is clearing out any misunderstanding of this glorious Christ. He's pointing to us that this glorious Christ is God. This glorious Christ that I'm telling you about, that I saw with my eyes, that I heard with my ears, that I held in my hands, perhaps bringing him off the cross. This glorious Christ was from the beginning. I want you to see this. He's, he's using the terms from the beginning, which is very the, the same term of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. You see, this is who he's talking about. It's God. It's God in the flesh. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's look at a few more verses that unpack that. In the Gospel of John 1.1, so this is the main Gospel of John, his, his, his unfolding of the life of Christ, we see John entering into it the same way. If you're new to studying the Bible, this is really cool. And um, some of you have been confused before. You, you went to 1 John, you read that, and you go, wait a minute, I've read that somewhere else. Yeah, you've read that somewhere else. You read it at the beginning of John's gospel. Not just this little letter, but the beginning of John's gospel. And then you read that and you go, I've read that somewhere else. Yeah, you read it at the beginning of Genesis. Notice this. The gospel of John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, and he goes, as John does artistically, in the beginning was the Word. Right above the Word, Jesus. That's who he's talking about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, um, life did not start on earth from a lightning bolt hitting uh, what some people talk about, proteins and crystals, crystals on the backs of crystals or, or something along those lines. I mean, some of the foremost authorities trying to explain how life actually began have, have just racked their brains seeking to come up with some type of explanation of there was life, or there was not life, and then there was life. Well, if you want to know where life came from, we just look right here to this verse. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse, five, uh, verse 3. All things were made through him. Without, not, without him, not anything was made that was made. Look at verse 4. In him was what? Was life. And the life was the light of men. And so we see that God is the originator of life. God is the work of life, and he is doing it from the beginning. This is Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, and this is the Apostle Paul writing. Look at verse 15. He, speaking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus was on the earth. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the picture of this is that he is emanating from the Father continuing, continually, and he is the, he is the prime uh, picture of anything that comes from the Father. He is the permanently, eternally emanating Son, and we see this. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the, the proto, the one who comes at highest rank, at highest priority. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were what? Created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. So the apostle John is seeking to help his readers see that this grand and glorious Christ that is much more than just a human person, that has the salvation of God within him, has been from the beginning. So you see, John is answering questions, even in these first words, in these first things, about the nature of Christ, who he is. He's debunking the lies that Jesus is less than God. He's coming against that in a very beautiful way. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Look at verse 18. Let's read it out loud, or verse 8. Let's read it out loud together. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Those are, those are beautiful reminders of who Jesus is. He's saying, remember the truth you've heard, and here's the truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of the other people who are, who are doubting Christ, who are, who are seen, seeking to make Christ out to be something different that he changed or something along those lines, the false teaching that is, that is continually coming from Satan against the truth of God, here we see that God's word is making clear who Jesus is and who he's always been. Look at verse 8 again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. That's forever in the past, and that's forever in the future. He is timeless in this. Friends, we can take great solace in that the glorious salvation of God through Jesus Christ never changes. Heaven and earth changes. The psalm says the mountains may slip into the sea, but praise God that he never changes. So fill these things in um, underneath that. First bullet point is God's plan and message of redemption is never changing. That is just good for the people of the first century to know, and that's good for the people of the 21st century to know, that God's message is, is always gloriously the same and reliable. The second one is those who preach the true gospel, and this is important, those who treat, preach the true gospel um, have always commanded these things or said these things. They have always commanded faith and repentance. And you see that in Matthew 4, 17, where Jesus stood up and he began teaching and he said, repent, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is the picture of faith and repentance. That is part of the true gospel message. Notice this. Those who have always preached the true gospel have said, declared God's kingdom is at hand. That means it's right here. It's, right, it's coming. It's right in front of you. It's very near to you. And I would say that to you today, that the message is this. Repent and believe in who Jesus is. Turn away from life without him and turn life to him. Turn away from your sin and self and turn to him as your only hope. That is what we see here. And understand this, it's urgent that you do that. 
So faithful proclamation of the gospel is always saying, now is the time to believe. If you hear God's voice today calling you to believe in Jesus, don't think next Sunday. Don't think next week. Don't think even this evening. I want to say to you, you come and you trust in him now. As you hear his voice, don't turn away your heart. And that has always been the faithful teaching of Scripture, is repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice the next one. And here's here's what they've always announced. They've always announced the merciful availability of divine forgiveness. God will forgive you. You don't have to pay for it. He paid for it. He'll forgive you. You say, well, that sounds too good to be true. You don't know what I've done. Friends, the message has always been God forgives sinners who repent of their sins and turn to him in faith. He will always, you say, but, but pastor, that just seems too good to be true. Praise God, it's not. Notice the next one here. True gospel proclaimers have always called sinners to be reconciled to God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. You ought to go home and look up every single one of these verses that are here. You'll be blessed as you do that. We we call sinners to be reconciled to God. That's what God wants. He wants a relationship with you. Starting point, folks, is that not what we've been pounding? That it's all about relationship? It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ did. That's the picture of the gospel. And that's what John wants us to understand, is that this unchanging person and work of Jesus Christ is before us. You see, so... That last bullet point there. John opens his letter with a simple statement. We've just been looking at this simple statement that establishes the gospel message concerning the word of life is permanent and it's unalterable. It has always been this way and it will never change. In a world where there's constant transition, where there's constant crisis, where there's constant doubt, where there's constant voices saying otherwise, we need to see the unchanging person and work of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can bank on that when the top caves in and the bottom falls out. That Jesus hasn't changed. Maybe you've run away. But my friends, Jesus hasn't changed. Jesus calls you to come back to himself. He calls you to see him. This is the unchanging work and person of Christ. Thirdly, we see that John is pointing out the physical reality of Jesus Christ. We've alluded to this so far, but I want you to see it in plain view. Look at verse 1, and it's right there underneath number 3 there, which we have what? Heard. Are you all there? Look at at number 3. What does he say at the end of that? What does he say? Which we have heard. Which we have what? Seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon. Now that phrase looked upon, right out there to the side, stared at. You see, John just didn't see him. It's like he didn't, he didn't just see him walk by. We're talking about, remember last week we talked about Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, the inner ones, these were the guys that were with Jesus all the time. John, if anybody could write this paragraph, it's John. Because he was with Jesus all the time. He was called the beloved. I mean, just, I mean, at at the most difficult hour, there was Jesus, there was John 
closest to Jesus. And so John, when he's writing this 60 years later for a church who's becoming confused about who Jesus is, he is saying, look, folks, I saw him. I heard him. And I heard him when he was preaching. I heard him when he was praying. I heard him when we were in the boat. I heard him when we were waking up from a long, difficult night of difficulty of whatever it may have been that they had gone through. He said, I have been with Jesus. I've heard what he said. And I've seen him. Now, I didn't just see him, but I've stared at him. I've gazed. The other word that you can use is gazed. I've gazed at him. And I, and I can only imagine that John was probably thinking and as he wrote this about the different scenes of his life where he was with Jesus. And perhaps, perhaps one of them that would have been most profound was standing there on Calvary looking up at Christ as he was being hung on the cross and crucified. And it says that they stood there gazing at him. John saw the Lord crucified. And then John was one of the ones that ran to the tomb. John and Peter run to the tomb. And they see the empty tomb. And they see the Lord in his resurrected glory. Can you imagine the wonder that they had? Can you imagine there in that upper room where they were gathered with the doors locked and Jesus comes through the wall in the midst of their fear and John is just gazing at him. You see, this is the great picture of John's reality, of physical reality and knowing him. You see, Jesus wasn't a, notice here, Jesus wasn't a mere spirit, a composite ideal that the mystics that would be talking about. He wasn't a mystical phantom, a ghost, or a basic mortal. No, look at the next one. Jesus was the infinite God-man. Over and over again, we see in Scripture that he was this tremendous, tremendous paradox. This tremendous thing of how can you be God and how can you be man and how can you be 100% of both, but he was. You see, he was God in the flesh who came to give his divine life to us. Notice the third bullet point there. Satan's lie that Jesus really didn't physically die for our sins is blasted by John as an eyewitness. He's saying, I saw him. I was there. Are the people who are telling you this, were they eyewitnesses? I don't think so. I have first-hand knowledge. And you know, I praise God that in his wisdom, he saw fit to inspire John to write this so that when those things are argued through the ages for us, here it is in the written word of God dealing with those issues. Because God knew what we were going to need in 20... Isn't God good to us? Inspires this, that when the Jesus seminar of the 70s and the 80s comes out, starting to really doubt everything about who Christ is, and when upper academia of classical liberalism and everything else comes along and assails the church and sound doctrine and orthodox theology, calling us to doubt the veracity of Scripture and doubt the true nature of Christ, that... This is being combated in the wisdom of God through a man 2,000 years earlier. Praise God. 
I thank God for this. You see, fill this in. Christ's physical death and, and resurrection is the means by which we are raised to life. This is the means by which we are raised to life. And that, look at verse 2. He calls him, he calls him, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, which was the, with the Father and made manifest to us. He is the eternal life. This is the glorious nature of who Christ is. Notice number four. Number four, as we come to it, and this is kind of throughout the text, but notice number four is notice that the unchanging gospel is proclaimed. It is proclaimed that we may believe it and live. And that's what John's doing. John is proclaiming the gospel in his letter. He, he's saying, I, I, it wasn't only that I proclaimed it here, but I've proclaimed it all my life. And this is what Paul proclaimed, and this is what Peter proclaimed, and this is what your faithful pastors have proclaimed. That's what John is saying. Notice what it says here, that this was made, look at verse 2, the life was made manifest. First of all, that's God proclaiming who he is to us, but notice the next part. We have seen it, this is in verse 2, we have, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it. So here again, testifying, proclaiming, the eternal life, which was made by the Father, was made manifest. And then look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, what does he say? We proclaim to you also to you. You see, and the reason that we proclaim it is that we may believe. So notice this, fill these in. The gospel is not kept for the spiritual elite, either of Gnosticism or college professors, or whatever group, or mystics that are out in a monastery. The gospel is not kept for the spiritual elite or privileged few, as false teachers often allege. When a church says, oh, we don't want you to have the Bible in your language because you can't handle it, that is false, that's wrong. When, when, there's, when there's some view that comes along and doubts who Christ is or seeks to hold back understanding of this through a spiritual hierarchy of some sort, this is not from God. And that's what John is pointing out in part here. Notice this. The gospel is personal, but it is not private. A lot of people say, well, you know, my relationship with God is very private. Well, if your relationship with God is very private, it's also unbiblical. The gospel is public. It's personal, but it's public. Jesus didn't die for you in hiding. Jesus didn't die for you out of plain view. Jesus died on a hill overlooking much of Jerusalem, held up, mocked by the world, and he, in his death, proclaimed, I love you, and I'm unashamed of you. This is personal, but it's not private. The gospel is a privilege. The gospel is a privilege that becomes a platform. So if you've been saved, you've been given a platform. Now, it's interesting. When I was a kid growing up, you know what this area was called? You know what this is called? It was called the platform. Pastor Billingsley did not like calling this the stage. He said, we're not in theatrics. We're not doing shows. We're not trying to entertain. 
We call this the platform because this is the place where we stand to proclaim the message. When the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Green Party or whatever party it is, they have a platform, the party platform, and the party platform is the basis of their message, right? So here we see that if you've been privileged to hear the gospel, receive the gospel, and be saved, you have been given a platform upon which to preach. Our helis doesn't need to say, well, Pastor Andrews is the only one that preached. No, our helis can preach the gospel too, and he can preach the gospel very quietly over a cup of coffee with somebody who's saying, you say you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? When God opens the door for you, God is giving you a platform through Jesus Christ to explain and to uh, declare that a Savior has died. And so Christians make manifest as God did. He makes manifest the gospel of His love, and we testify to it, and we preach it. You see, the true Christian, fill this in, the true Christian is blessed to be a blessing, It's not blessed so you can go contain it and hoard it to yourself. The true Christian is blessed to be a blessing. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven because they will look at you and say, wow, something is different. It's not that. It's not Clyde I'm seeing. I'm seeing something different. It's Christ. Notice the last one here. The true Christian is called to proclaim the unchanging gospel so others can have fellowship. Notice up there in verse 3. So others can have fellowship. Notice up in verse 3. That's what we have heard and seen. We proclaim to you, and then I underlined it. Let's read that out loud, what I've underlined. So that you too may have fellowship with us. You see, isn't that one of the most merciful things that you can do is to share the gospel with someone so that they can have fellowship with God too and with you too and with the people of God too. On the other flip side of that, how cruel do you have to be not to tell someone that a Savior has died for them? Knowing that eternal hell awaits for those who have not been washed in the blood of Christ. How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them that they can be forgiven? May we see that the proclamation of the gospel is a privilege. It's a platform. We're blessed to be a blessing. And we're called to proclaim. Are we afraid that we may embarrass ourselves? Are we afraid that we may be rejected? Are we afraid that somebody may think lowly of us? They thought lowly of Christ, yet he went all the way to the cross for us. Notice number five. Number five. This little paragraph shows us this. Number five. Notice that the unchanging gospel results in real relationships. It's real relationships. It's what God originally designed for us. Right below that number five, notice the text that's there from verse three. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
You see, the word fellowship is right underneath this, and it's called, the, the actual Greek word is koinonia. And it's a, the idea is this, a mutual participation in a common cause or a shared life. It's fellowship. Um, we talked about this a few moments ago in Starting Point, talking about the fact that the church is not just a, a list of people. And we said that the church is not brick and mortar. My dad used to get on to us when we would say, I'm going over to the church. He would say, no, you're going to the church house. The church isn't there right now. You're like, it's not there right now? No, it's not. Why? Because the church isn't a building. The church is a body. It's a body of believers. It's a body of believers that make up the body of Christ, of whom Christ is our head. His truth is our creed. And so the picture is that God has called us to a fellowship with him that is glorious. Notice this, the saving work of Jesus Christ restores our broken fellowship. Sin comes and destroys fellowship with God, and it often destroys the relationship that we have with people around us, but Jesus Christ comes to restore that broken fellowship. Notice this, that true salvation brings reconciliation and therefore fellowship with God. I love Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Look what it says in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now what? Reconciled. reconciled. And how did he do it? He has now reconciled, how? In his body of flesh by his death. You see, that's how Jesus brings you to be right with God. He lays down his own life. This is God laying down his life for you. You say, I'm still confused about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just keep coming. Keep listening. We'll help you. Come talk to us about it. The Trinity, if anybody says, hey, I can explain the Trinity, run the other direction. Because the Trinity, man, it's big. And there's a mystery there that is grand. But we can understand that it's one God in three persons and the perfect Son obeys perfectly the perfect Father who gives the Son. This is God giving Himself and say, let me show you how much I love you. I will come join you in your mess and then I will lay down on a wooden cross and allow you to drive nails through my feet and my hands and hold me up to be ridiculed and rejected by the world. And I'm doing so and I'm saying, I love you. And I'm saying, it is finished. It is paid in full. Your debt is paid. Come and believe in me. Oh, the glorious. Now, now I, I don't want to miss the rest of that passage. You need to look at this. It's chapter 1, Colossians 1, 21 through 23, actually. Look what he says in verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order. Why did he do that? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This is why we're called saints. Anyone who's a Christian has been completely forgiven. You say, it sounds too good to be true. Praise God, it's not. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, look at this, underline it, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't shift away. That's what the problem was in the first century. And that is the problem in the 21st century. There's always a danger of shifting away from Christ. There's always a danger of looking to the world. There's always a danger of going into 
a, a, a view of Christ that is not correct. It is always a danger of loving the world more than we love God. Notice the next one here. True salvation brings a common cause or shared life with others, namely God's people. That's what it does. Salvation brings us into fellowship. This, that's what this is about. You see, the last one, once of the greatest, one of, that should say one, one of the greatest indicators of whether or not someone knows Christ is whether or not they fellowship with his people. One of the greatest indicators of whether or not someone knows Christ is whether or not they fellowship with his people. You know, there's a lot of people that claim to know God and want to have nothing to do with his people. And let me tell you, there's not a category for that in this book. When you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament, it's always about God being with his people and his people being with his people. That we are together in him. And I commend you for that. Here you are. Praise God. Some of you, God is bringing you into that fellowship. You know, that's why we teach starting point. That's why we have something called meaningful membership, is that we believe what the Bible says about what the true church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to come listen to a show on Sunday. It's not about us coming to a service alone. It is our corporate worship But the real picture is that we are in the body of Christ. When somebody hurts, we hurt. When somebody rejoices, we rejoice. When somebody needs help, we help. We raise our kids together. We go through life together. Whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're young, whether we're old, whatever our station, rich or poor, black or white, whatever it is that we are a family together where Christ is the lifeblood of our church. So this is the glorious fellowship of Christ, that we rejoice in him. Notice number six. Notice, and this is the last verse in verse four of this little paragraph. Notice the unchanging gospel brings a joy that is complete. Notice the unchanging gospel brings a joy that is complete. Look what it says there. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be what? Complete. Now, the first thing I want to just say on this is that the world knows little or nothing at all of the joy that is spoken here. What he is talking about, now, the world has certain joys. There's no doubt about that. But it's not, they don't have the joys that he is talking about. He's not talking about the joy that is complete. Let me tell you, right now, this morning, there are babies being born in Joe DiMaggio Hospital or Memorial Regional, or Broward, or wherever, wherever it is. And you know what? I mean, I'm, I know at the moment it's not real joyful um, as a woman is going through the great pains of childbirth, but man, the joy that comes after that. And for those of you mothers who have been through that, you, it's something that us guys will never understand. Um, I mean, we, we get a little hint of it here and there, and we, we, we can be a, a loving father, there's no doubt about that, but there's something special about that that joy. The, the, the world does have joy. The world does have joy. That, that last day that you clock out for the last time and you retire, you say, don't tell me that ain't joy, pastor, um, for some of you. Or, you know, whatever it is, that, that, that there's certain joys that we have. But, you know, it, what, even the birth of a baby, that is tied to temporal things, a temporal life. 
in this, in this place. This is talking about the joy that is complete in knowing God and being right with God. Listen, for eternity. This is the one who purchases that. And when you look at the life of Christ, you say, well, there's, there's no more joyful person on the earth than Christ. There's no question of that. Yet he was a man of sorrows acquainted with griefs. You see, joy has a different context than the world often paints it. We're not talking about just the day the baby's born. We're not talking about the day of retirement. We're talking about something that goes far beyond that. The Bible tells us that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. He endured the cross despising the shame. This is, this is a joy that comes differently. This is a joy that rings eternal, that goes beyond circumstances and beyond temporal things that are passing away. You see, fill it in. At best, the world's joys are temporary. They're not eternal. You see, true joy, we see from Romans 14, true joy comes from righteousness. That means being right with God. Peace, that's the peace that only God can give. And joy in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. So in John's Gospel, John 15, 11, this is back over in the Gospel of John, not the letter, Gospel of John. Notice Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, this is just before he's going to die on the cross. Listen to what he says. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be what? Made full. Right out there to the side, complete. Right out there to the side, complete. So how can we have this joy that John writes about in both this little letter, a complete joy? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not in looking to the world. It's not in forgetting heaven in looking to the world. I want you to see this the dark box on the page in front of you. Here's what it's not. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great pastor in England. He pastored um, Westminster Chapel. This guy is one of my heroes. Um, He pastored um, in England for 40 years, um, preaching the gospel um, in, excuse me, in London. Before that, he was in Wales. He was a medical doctor for the king. And he left being a medical doctor for the king, and he became a pastor. Listen to what he wrote. When men forget the next world, that's heaven, when men forget the next world and concentrate only on this present life, this world becomes a kind of living hell. Have you ever met somebody that's no longer thinking about heaven? They're just thinking about this life. Maybe it's the pursuit of wealth, the rat race of trying to make a little bit more, make a little bit more, and have a little bit more. Maybe it's just the present life of even your children, and sometimes they do great, and sometimes they don't do so great, and sometimes they're not around, and there's sorrow in your heart. Sometimes I feel that. Both my girls have moved away. Sometimes there's sorrow in my heart because my girls aren't here. Sometimes we look at the things, and then Ted Capella winds up with bone cancer this week. Mr. Johns or the others in our church family that 
have great trials. You see, if we just focus on this present life without the thought and the remembrance of all that God has promised in heaven, in the glory of being with God, this life can become a bit of living hell. It can go from one fear and trial to the next. But see, the doctor, he was called the doctor. The doctor writes on the source of true joy, and I want to close with this beautiful quote. I'm going to ask if you would to please stand together as I read this quote. Keep this in front of you. If you would, let's read it. Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There's only one thing that can give true joy, and that is a, and that is a contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and His great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in Him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want joy? See Jesus. You want joy? Come to faith in Jesus and not yourself. You want joy? Run to Him. Let's pray together. Lord, may we ask two questions this morning. May we ask, do we have the personal knowledge? We just read, joy comes from the personal knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that at this moment, we would ask ourselves, do I know Christ? And if I do know him, am I truly contemplating him? Am I gazing upon him? Am I holding to him? Lord, I thank you for inspiring the Apostle John to write these words for us. Lord, the devil hates the doctrines of Christ. He doesn't want us to see who you are and what you've done. But Lord, your glorious word has told us and through the ages, it's been preached, it's been proclaimed, so that we can know the source of our salvation and the great hope of joy complete. Lord, I pray that we would be a church, that we would be individuals that embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus and that we would walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray.